Hello, and welcome to episode 11 of the Venture Games podcast. I'm Chris Quedu, and today I'm thrilled to introduce my next guest, Lo Tony, founding managing partner at Plexo Capital. How's it going, Lo? Going well. Thanks for asking. How about yourself? Good, good. I'm, I'm doing great. Thanks for joining me today. So to kick things off, you know, for, for those who don't know you, you know, I would love to just dive into your professional background. Sure. And I'll keep it brief. Sure. I am the founding managing partner of Plexo Capital. We are an institutional investor allocating capital across the startup ecosystem. We invest into venture capital funds as a limited partner, and then we source deals from the portfolios of our Plexo Capital GP network to invest into directly. The strategy was born at Google Ventures, now called GV, where I was a partner. We had a goal to identify more firms to consider as investments, and we wanted to get more into the top of the funnel. One of the theses that we had was that Black GPs in particular, and I expanded that to women and other people of color as well, Mm -hmm. had this interesting path into venture capital, giving them access to interesting networks to get to differentiated deal flow, but then a different lens to evaluate market opportunities as well as entrepreneurs differently. And so that strategy worked well at GV so well that I said, hey, I think that could be a standalone opportunity. And fortunately, the entrepreneurial spirit runs deep and permeates <laughs> all the way across the multiple points of the alphabet network. And mm -hmm. so I got the support to be able to incubate Plexo Capital inside of GV and ultimately spun it out in March of 2018. And Alphabet, Google's holding company, came on as our anchor investor. And then we also brought on some great folks like Intel Capital, Cisco Investments, the Royal Bank of Canada. Hampton University, which is a historically black college where mm -hmm. I went to school, the Ford Foundation, uh, and more recently, we brought on folks like uh, the Home Depot. So we've mm -hmm. got a great investor base, and we're super excited about the, the opportunity to drive some alpha, generate superior returns, and as a byproduct of that, really help to increase diversity in the ecosystem. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Yeah. So that's a topic, you know, I would love to come back to uh, later in the podcast, but for now, uh, just quickly on Plexo, could you just give a bit more details just as far as when you are making a direct investment, uh, at what stage are you typically focusing on? And are there any sectors uh, of interest that you tend to focus on more than others? We tend to like the opportunities based on analysis that we've done on the historical returns going all the way back to 1983. Mm -hmm. The results show that the, the distribution of those returns is, is much more normalized after about investments of entry points into rounds that are uh, called $100, $150 million post. And the, you know, the bigger returns, you know, kind of where the, the median return is 5.6% and then the average return is 22%. Mm -hmm. Those tend to happen into rounds that are sub $100 million post. So think, you know, rounds in today's dollars that are less than a $20 million round in size. So that usually ends up being pre-seed, seed, and what I'll call classic 
Series A, since mm-hmm. Series A is kind of are all over the board these yeah. days. So that's where we like to to enter. That's also where we like the funds we invest into to have their mm-hmm. entry points as well. So we're really looking for those opportunities for the outsized returns, the outliers, the Googles, the Ubers, the Facebook, the best time to enter those is early. Mm-hmm. So that's when we like both our venture funds to enter as well as our own direct investments to enter. And then in terms of the areas that we like, I mean, we have, we're a generalist, but we do have places that we like to lean a little bit more towards, which include enterprise. So that would be infrastructure. We really like the areas of, of infrastructure and the mm-hmm. opportunities there. And then also I would say marketplace and e-commerce, both the experiences themselves, as well as the infrastructure required to provide those experiences. And then a little bit of, of consumer, the kind of some of the things that we're focused in on is, as trends. We believe that every company is either becoming a software development company or a software vendor. Yeah. So that really drives a lot of our thought around enterprise, around marketplace, you know, there's so many opportunities to take that basic buyer and seller model, supply and demand and apply it. You know, we've obviously the big home runs have been companies like eBay, where mm-hmm. I spent time and Uber. And we like that applied to different areas. And then also the infrastructure that's required to, to power them uh, lends itself really well to e-commerce. And then on, on the consumer side, some of the areas that we like are the gaming piece, you know, esports. I just know that don't have a particular point of view on studios, but mm-hmm. I know that more people are going to be playing games, more people are going to watch people play games, and more people are going to play games together. And then, as as an interesting strategy across more horizontal, we feel that there's an opportunity to be able to provide more financial services. You know, think the Stripe model of just mm-hmm. a little snippet of code to be able to allow companies to vertically integrate, even if they're not in financial services. In fact, most of them to seize this opportunity won't be in the financial services space, but nonetheless, allow companies to almost build out a vertical integration strategy that's inclusive of financial services as another hook and a way to, to monetize a user base. So those are the areas that we like. So, you know, pre-seed, seed, series A, mm-hmm. enterprise, marketplace, slash e-commerce, um, a little bit of consumer. Got it. So I'm going to uh, cherry pick gaming and, and come back to you a little later, you know, given it's, it's venture. Sure. <laughs> but for now, just a, a couple more quick questions on Plexo. So as far as the split between direct investments versus uh, investing in other funds, you know, ballpark, yes. how do you think about, you know, what, uh, what split you're targeting? So for fund one, we were at about a 60, 40 split mm-hmm. between LP and direct when accounting for recycling. For fund two, we're at about a, I would call it a 55% LP target, and then about a 35% target for directs. And mm-hmm. that'll be split between, most of that will be primary with a little bit of secondary as well. And then if you are allowed to say, what are some of the more notable funds that you're invested in? Yeah, you know, I, you, <laughs> you're never supposed to have <laughs> favorites as a as an investor just like you're right. never supposed to have favorites as a as you know a parent yeah <laughs> um, but just you know I'll, I'll talk about some of the fun so there there's this yeah. original gv5 you know that includes cross culture which is now mac mm-hmm. uh, ulu ventures precursor you know charles comes yeah. from the gaming space yeah. i'm sure charles is in your network yeah 
Uh, and then, you know, we've added some, some new funds that are, are pretty interesting, like a bold start out of New York, female founders fund. Mm -hmm. um, let's see, Kindred, who you might also know, because yep. uh, of Steve Jang and uh, base 10 probably is in, in your radar and equal yeah. ventures. So the way that we think about the world is that we want to identify GPs that are building world-class franchises where they have clearly differentiated themselves to the point where there's the ability to lead, to win the right to lead mm -hmm. rounds with entrepreneurs. You know, those are the folks that are most interesting. And so, you know, we've got an amazing network. We targeted 20 funds for our fund one. And then for our, the Plexo Capital flagship fund two, mm -hmm. we're targeting 30 funds. You know, we like a mix. So some funds are nano, so about 15 million and under in fund size. You know, the core area we like to play are the folks that kind of have a pre-seed seed that's around 15 yep. to 100 million. And then we've added for fund two, for Plexo Capital fund two, we've added funds that are 100 to 250 because we've seen a lot of GPs partner up and have the ability to raise a first time fund or a second fund mm -hmm. that can actually invest across both seed and series A, classic series A, not yeah. ma massive series <laughs> A's, but classic series A's. So those are the folks that we like, you know, we've got, um, obviously most of the activity is in the San Francisco, well, maybe it's not obvious, but for mm -hmm. us, most of our activity is in the San Francisco Bay area, but also Los Angeles and um, New York and Atlanta. And then outside of the United States, we're active as both an fund investor and direct investor in Canada, Toronto, we've got both fund and direct investments, um, Latin America. So we've been very active mm -hmm. in Latin America with a GP in Mexico City and investments in Mexico, Brazil, Colombia. And then also the, the continent of Africa. I think there's a lot of interesting activity. We've even talked about some yep. of that in our prior conversations um, directly where we have an LP um, commitment in aggressive capital led by Maya, an, an amazing mm -hmm. um, GP and entrepreneur. We like to think of our GPs more as entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, you know, my dad is from Ghana and, you know, at some point I would love to be able to invest in Africa. You know, it's something that's personal to me and I know it's something that's personal to you as well. So what are yes. some of the interesting trends in Africa that you guys are looking at for investment? Yeah, so here's what I really like about, I would say, you know, not only Africa, but Latin America as mm -hmm. well. I think what's, what's most interesting about Africa is that when one thinks about some of the opportunities entrepreneurs have seized to create companies in the United States, mm -hmm they often will leverage some kind of existing infrastructure. And the example that I like to use to really drive this point home, because at some point, everyone, at least on your podcast, is familiar with the MLS service, the multiple yeah. listing service the real estate industry uses. So there've been some great companies that are basic, in essence, they're built on top of MLS data, mm -hmm. right? But when one starts to go to, to other areas around the world, 
often that infrastructure doesn't exist, right. right? So if you think about the ability in the United States, building these companies using MLS data, there's a lot of people that can do that, right? Mm -hmm. So it really removes a little bit of the friction for the opportunity based on the availability of data from this central, you know, well-organized and, you know, data structured um, repository. Now go to, you know, other places, sometimes that infrastructure doesn't exist. Right. So for an entrepreneur to be able to go after a market opportunity, they might actually need to build some yeah. of that infrastructure themselves. And as a result, what ends up happening is there's an amazing moat created that provides significant defensibility within their market opportunity. You know, not just any company can kind of come up and build right. on top of infrastructure that doesn't exist. It's like, oh shoot, I got to build that. And so yeah. that will dissuade a lot of entrepreneurs from going after the opportunity. And if an entrepreneur can seize it early, you know, then obviously there's a little bit of scale and, you know, first mover advantage as well. So, you know, those are some of the opportunities that we like in, in Africa, as well as, you know, just kind of looking at some of the things that are working in other continents that haven't gotten to the, the continent of Africa yet, um, especially if they're coupled with that, you know, lack of existing uh, infrastructure to build on top of. And then, you know, I think some of the things that are the obvious plays, you know, looking at some of the trends that people have taken advantage of for investment opportunities in areas like Southeast Asia, you know, mm -hmm. you see a lot of similarities between Southeast Asia, Latin America with the burgeoning middle class in Africa. I mean, so obviously that's going to be a pretty interesting place to go. All of these folks, you know, they're, they're spending money um, they don't have the same type of infrastructure for financial services. Um, you know, obviously these places are very mobile first. Mm -hmm. So they're skipping a lot of the steps that one would take uh, in a normal, you know, and I shouldn't say normal, but in markets where, you know, there was existing infrastructure. I think what ends up happening is, you know, these in certain areas, these, these you know, these classes grow so quickly um, to then wanting to behave like, you know, Western consumers and, and spend money. Mm -hmm. And those, you know, a lot of the services that would be in between don't exist, which is why we see the deep mobile penetration yep. in places like the, the African continent and Southeast Asia and Latin America. So we, we like a lot of opportunities that are, you know, mobile first. Um, infrastructure, obviously, are, are big plays for the, the deeper pocket private equity folks. Mm -hmm. You know, I think you see a lot of movement from Asia because of the strong ties and connection with Asia, you know, developing a lot of the the infrastructure, um, physical infrastructure on the continent of Africa. There's strong ties. So there's a desire for entry from a lot of these other countries into the African markets. And I think, you know, the savvy investors understand the exits don't necessarily need to come from the de novo opportunities to go public. Right. They could come from other countries wanting to get access into those markets uh, via acquisition. So there, there's a lot of interesting things happening there. Yeah, actually, just a couple of points that you brought up that I think are really interesting. One, just on the fact that a lot of startups in these 
countries actually have to build the infrastructure or the industry from the ground up, I think that is an incredible investing theme, you know, and to your point, it does lead to these really established modes, right? And we've seen it in other geographies, uh, particularly in Southeast Asia, you know, I love how you made uh, that comparison, you know, because some people look at Africa and they say, hey, it's too early, you know, whereas other people who look at it, I think from the lens that you're talking about, look at Africa and they're like, actually, this is really exciting, you know? we're right on the cusp of seeing sort of an acceleration in so many different industries. And if you can find the right winners that are building these industries from the ground up, you know, it can be incredibly uh, exciting and potentially lucrative. Exactly. Um, okay. So Lo, I wanted to shift gears slightly and talk about your, uh, your operating experience, you know, so I know that before you switched to the investing world, uh, you spent quite some time as an operator. We don't have to touch on every single uh, thing you've done, you know, but briefly, um, I would love to talk about your time at Zynga and what mm -hmm. you were doing when you were there. Yeah, Zynga was, you know, fascinating. So I wasn't looking to go to Zynga at the time, but a lady, Allison Pincus, who mm -hmm. was running a company, One King's Lane, at the time she was married to Mark Pincus, the founder and CEO mm -hmm. of Zynga. I was catching up with her and she was, you know, thinking about picking my brain for product people that had e-commerce and marketplace experience. And, you know, I was telling her I had this, oh God, this is, I got to take myself all the way back and think exactly when this was. So I guess this is around maybe 2009, 2010, maybe mm -hmm. something like that. And um, I ended up talking with her about how excited I was about incorporating game mechanics into my playbook because I really felt at the time, you know, game mechanics were, were underutilized in different experiences, both, both consumer as well as uh, enterprise. Mm -hmm. And so I was very interested in getting that skill set. And so then the natural thing for her to say was, well, you should, you should go and, and talk to the folks at, at Zynga. Mm -hmm. And she said, you know, I think they're doing some interesting things and your stock will be, will be worth something. And so all of a sudden that led to me going into Zynga and I was a, a studio general manager as kind of like the, the CEO of, of a business with P&L responsibility. Mm -hmm. I started off on this, this game called Yoville and then ultimately ended up going over to, to poker mm -hmm. um, and casino. And then you know, it, it was just a fascinating time to be there. Reason being, and this is where, you know, people have to take themselves back. So, you know, we're, yeah. we're in, you know, 2010, right? So, you know, you have to think about where we were with regard to, to mobile, yeah. right? So mobile without question was, you know, it was, it was growing significantly, but at, at Zynga, there had been a little bit of a hiccup moving over to yeah. mobile. And the first game was Farmville. And, and the challenge was, you know, trying to take this big screen experience from mm -hmm. Farmville that was so rich and entertaining and move it to mobile. And the mistake was just trying to replicate the same experience. It didn't right. translate well to mobile. You had to have some different user experience techniques as well as actually some different game mechanics as mm -hmm. well for mobile. Now, I'm running poker. Now, poker, poker was pretty easy in my yeah. eyes to kind of move it over to the mobile experience. So, you know, at the, at the time the the executive staff, we'd have these e-staff meetings and, you know, Mark would always want to understand, you know, what the strategy was for the quarter and what were going to be the big things that were going to be released for all mm -hmm. the game studios. And, you know, 
I said, well, actually for us, all we're gonna do is focus on migrating to mobile. Now, this is Mark coming off of this really unpleasant experience with yeah. Farmville. And you know, he, needless to say, was not very excited to hear me say that, yeah, by the way, we're not gonna release anything new. All <laughs> we're gonna do is the entire, you know, 100 person team is gonna focus on migrating to mobile. Yeah. And to me, all one had to do was look at the numbers. Mm -hmm. And we could, I could look at the numbers for all of the games on the players on desktop and the players on mobile for poker, yeah. right? And, and it was clear to me that they needed to converge, but there was a lot that needed to happen. So at the time, people on desktop couldn't, believe it or not, couldn't play with people on mobile. It was two separate experiences. Mm -hmm. So I felt like it was constraining the growth of mobile and I felt like if we connected the two, ultimately people from desktop would move over to mobile and it would just further accelerate the growth of mobile. So I locked the team down. They, you know, and basically Mark told me that I, I better be right <laughs> <laughs> or there would be consequences. We don't need to talk about what those would be. Sure, sure. Um, but, but, you know, we were right. Mm -hmm. And then we ultimately grew, um, we grew poker, you know, I think, God, maybe maybe we grew it 150% in revs to the biggest game on Zynga. Mm -hmm. And we grew it to about a quarter of a billion in annual revenues. Um, so we were right. And, you know, that was the canary in the coal mine. It pretended all of the, you know, advances that Zynga made into mobile. So we were the first success story um, for mobile. And I always tell people it's not, it wasn't rocket science. I mean, yeah. anyone could have looked at the charts you didn't even need to know the business. You could just look at the charts and do trend lines and say, oh, well, right. that's going to that's gonna be it. So we just had to kind of get a few things right and kind of navigate the, the architecture, re-architect everything, um, which we had a great engineering team to do so, and, and then navigate the, uh, the politics of, of doing that internally. Yeah. But, okay. but it really opened my eyes to, um, to mobile. Mm -hmm. and the future of mobile again you got to take yourself all the way back we're talking about going back 11 years now yeah uh, and then also the game mechanics you know i mean at that time we didn't see the proliferation of these different techniques around you know leaderboard the virals that zynga really innovated on i would even say customer acquisition strategies yep. you know cac and then thinking about how to measure LTV and incorporate in things like, you know, the value of someone being viral and putting a dollar amount on that as well. Yeah. I mean, there were a lot of things. And then, you know, the, the infrastructure itself, you know, I think Zynga really innovated on a, you know, a hybrid approach to infrastructure, you know, public private um, infrastructure, little cloud and I always used to say all of the data analysis and infrastructure that Zynga had, I mean, that was enough innovation and technology to be a company in and of itself. So mm -hmm. I was really, you know, pleased to have that experience. And I think it's, it's helped, uh, obviously, you know, it's helped because I get, I see gaming deals, right? So yeah. I mean, in and yeah. of itself, I mean, you could argue that it was worth it just for that, but, you know, also just kind of the understanding that that gave me of how to run a P and L at scale um, you know, manage a hundred plus person team, um, you know, all that was invaluable. Yeah, no, those are also uh, a number of great points. So people were questioning whether 
Facebook would be able to successfully transition to mobile, you know, so, so transitioning right. to mobile wasn't this like super easy transition, you know, it's not like one day you're on, right. you know, you're on desktop, you're on app, and then the next day you're on mobile, right? Like these are actually huge challenges that uh, big companies had to face. Um, so that's incredible that you were uh, such a big part of that. And, you know, Zynga Poker today, you know, I haven't looked super recently, but last I looked, it was still a pretty large franchise. You know, I think some people may not understand like how a free to play poker business where you're not actually playing for money can become, you know, a several hundred million dollar business, but, you know, just shows how, how far the, the gaming industry uh, has come. Um, and yeah. then you know, the last thing too is on the, game mechanics too you know it's it's really interesting that you were able to see the evolution of of those things you know because today things like customer acquisition and customer retention and increasing monetization are so scientific you know and so well understood whereas you know back then it was more sort of you know you were you were creating the playbook and sort of figuring out real uh real time that's right and you know one of the things that i will credit zynga for mm -hmm is the ability to hire some of the smartest minds around a data-driven approach to everything, engineering, yep. product, UX, monetization. For a period of time, you know, I, I, would, I would argue, this is, this is before the pendulum had swung at Facebook, when, you know, at this time, 2010 through about 2013, Zuck was very, in my opinion, Zuck was still very focused on hiring folks in his image. Therefore, mm -hmm. you know, it was a very engineering centric company. Yeah. Um, and then I, I would say that, again, in my opinion, you know, a transition started to happen around 2015 or so. But for that period of time from about, you know, I don't know, 2010 to 2015, Zynga product managers and engineers, I would say, were the most highly desired and sought after mm. by companies to bring in folks that understood a metric driven approach to product and engineering mm -hmm. and the ability to kind of implement that. Um, now I would argue, you know, it's, it's the Facebook PM, yeah. you know, and it's been, it's, and it will be, you know, who knows, we've got some other companies coming up. So, you know, who knows, Airbnb, Stripe, you know, those yeah. folks will begin to go out and proliferate and do some amazing things as founders and, and early employees. But there was a period in time where it was the Zynga PM that was the most, that was the hottest person to try and yeah. hire. Yeah, no, that's, I definitely believe it. It's just funny, like, you know, now, you know, some folks hearing that are probably, you know, somewhat surprised to hear that. But <laughs> well, yeah, all, all the young cats, was. all the young exactly. cats, you know, it's like, what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, so, I mean, I was a huge Farmville player, you know, so I remember when, like, you know, I'd be getting tons and tons of uh, notifications from Farmville yeah. and, and Zynga was just the hottest uh, gaming company for a minute. Um, yeah. So, Lo, are you a gamer yourself by any chance? I, not anymore. Mm -hmm. I, I was a gamer, especially when my kids were younger. Yeah. Um, but we were we were playing, you know, more of Xbox games. So, mm -hmm. you know, like Madden yeah. and, you know, games of that nature. So I never really got into, you know, League or, yeah, or yeah. Call of Duty mm -hmm. or or any of those games. No, that's that's not my thing. Yeah, not no, no thing. perfectly okay. Um, okay, <laughs> and then uh, you mentioned earlier too. You know, you're in, you've looked at some trends within uh, gaming and esports. And so, yeah. what investing? You know, I know you've invested in Play Versus. Um, mm -hmm. but, you know, you, 
if either that one or another investment you've either looked at or done, um, what is some of the interesting investing that you've done in the game industry? And what are some trends that you think are uh, interesting and, and worth investment consideration today? So here is, and this is partially based on my experience at Zynga. Mm -hmm. So we have a very, I would call it simple thesis around gaming. And I, I think I hinted or alluded to this earlier. Yeah. So I, we know three things with certainty. Yeah. We know that tomorrow, more people will be playing games than are playing today. Yeah. We know that tomorrow, more people will be watching people play games <laughs> than today. And yeah. we know that tomorrow, more people will be playing games together than yeah. are playing today. And, and that's it. That's our, that's our simple investment thesis. Mm -hmm. The one thing that we don't know, and this goes back to Zynga, is what games they're going to be playing. Yeah. I don't know that. There are people that like yourself yeah hopefully know that answer. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's the hope at least. i i'm i'm so not a gamer yeah so i don't know what games they're right, going right. to be playing so the thing that we focus on are who are the folks that can build the infrastructure to make all of this possible mm -hmm. and that's really how we focused our thesis you know i think that going all the way back to, you know, the early days of electronic arts, you know, I've always thought that gaming was going to be as dominant as and a key player in the entertainment industry. Yep. And without question, gaming has its seat at the table yep. in the entertainment industry. And, you know, again, for your, your listeners that aren't as old and have, I got the gray <laughs> hairs and that wasn't the case, right? right that wasn't right. always the case. And people mm -hmm. would laugh if anyone ever said, oh, there will be games that will be, you know, as big of a hit as, you know, blockbuster movies. Yeah. People would just look at you and laugh, <laughs> you know, and, and, and then let alone your point on the migration to free to play. Right. right? Okay, so now I've accepted there can be a studio that will build a game for purchase, you know, yeah. 50 to 100 bucks that people will buy. But then the movement towards, you know, free to play, downloadable games, people, oh, that's, that's crazy, you know, yeah. but all these things continue to happen. So, you know, I'm very bullish on the gaming space. But again, the one area, and we see a lot of these deals come across, but the mm -hmm. one area that we just, don't really go after are the studios. Yeah. I'm I'm not savvy enough to really understand, you know, which ones yeah. are going to be the best opportunities. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And just on the free to play thing, you know, it's I think some people are shocked to hear that on a quote unquote free game, there are people spending four or five or six figures a year yeah. on yeah. a free game. The whales. Yeah. Got to yeah. go, got to go whale hunting. Yeah. So the way I personally think about it, right. Is if you think of like a high end fashion brand, for example, right. Like name what, what, Dior. Whatever. Yeah. Dior. Right. Seems and, to be my favorite at the moment. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, up to a certain point, the materials are better. You know, you're getting a, a, a better product. Right. But beyond that, you're largely paying for something intangible. Right. Which is a that's brand. right. And right. if you are a person who is spending all your time in a video game, you know, so that basically is the representation of you, mm -hmm. it shouldn't be hard to see why somebody would want that same brand that is intangible in the real world 
to be to represent them in this digital world right so that's why to me and you know having grown up as a huge gamer who has spent tons and tons of time in digital worlds it makes so much sense to me yes no i i like that analogy i actually mm -hmm. have not heard that one before but that's a good one probably worth a you know some kind of blog post and i think that is very accurate it is the representation of someone right. in the in the digital world you know think about you know the ability to kind of climb the leaderboard to have a following yeah. on on twitch or one of the other streaming programs um platforms i should say that's accurate yeah because mm -hmm. there at some point right it's you know okay wow it's a great experience the engine's really cool it's fast i got a good connection the gameplay is great there's a lot of people on here yeah. but at some point you know what separates the whales is that is true is like hey this is so much a part of me yep. now and a representation of who i am and i'm willing to you know have more of my excess dollars go towards helping to facilitate that exactly all right so shifting gears away from uh from games now for a minute you know i know you've spoken a lot about how your operating experience has actually helped you uh, as an investor. So two questions. One, you know, just quickly, what are some of the ways that that is true? And then two, what actually made you want to transition from being an operator to being an investor? So I actually did it backwards. I went to Cal and it was the luck of proximity mm -hmm. to all the activity in Silicon Valley as, a, as opposed to where it right. is in San Francisco. Right. I guess now it's just distributed everywhere. But yeah. Being at Cal allowed me to, well, I'll even take a step back. I wanted to be an investment banker when I entered grad school mm -hmm. at Cal. And I came in thinking I wanted to go work at Hambrick and Quist. So Hambrick and Quist was one of these so-called four horsemen because back then the Goldman's and Morgan's of the world, I guess JP Morgan's, they really yeah. were not taking tech companies public it was mm -hmm. these you know four horsemen it was you know alex brown hambrick and quist you know robbie stevens tom weisel mm -hmm. and so if one wanted to be involved in tech finance that's usually where everyone gravitated that's what i knew yeah when i went to cal all of a sudden they had all these venture capitalists coming in and they were talking about everything at the front end of the process, yeah. right? Investment banking is the back end, right. merger, acquisition, yeah. or an IPO. And when the VC started talking, I was like, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> this is more interesting to me yeah. than the back end. Like, this is like seeing the future at the earliest stage. And to, mm -hmm. you know, I'm like a, a natural kind of a gadget person. So yeah. that was way more interesting. So the eager beaver that I that I was, or maybe still am, mm -hmm. I ran up to all these investment bankers and talked to them and, and you know, kind of were like, eh, that's kind of interesting, but these guys are in suits and all stuff. <laughs> then I'd run up to all the venture capitalists, you know, they were much more casual, never yeah. had a tie on. A lot of them had on jeans. And the way that they would talk about their process i was like okay that's what i want to do how mm -hmm. do i become someone like yourself now going again taking you know i'm old so you got to go all the way back you know <laughs> going to all these websites for the firms that even had websites yeah, back then. yeah it was always you know stanford 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 harvard stanford yeah. harvard harvard stanford Penn, Harvard. you know so it was <laughs> yeah, you know yeah. I, I didn't see cal and right right um but it didn't deter me mm -hmm. i also didn't see a lot of faces that looked like me yeah in fact i didn't see any 
And, uh, but nonetheless, I'd run up to these folks and, you know, they actually gave me time. Mm -hmm. and, and the consistent threads were, well, be a, a CEO. Cause at this point, you know, most of these VCs were CEOs turned VC. Yeah. Right. So they were like, you know, be a CEO or, and I was like, okay, how do I, how do I become a CEO? They're like, well, go run a big P and L. And I was like, okay, well, you know, what's your recommended functional role to get to a P and L. And then they were like, so one guy in particular, he was like, well, look, man, go and go and, you know, be a product manager. Mm -hmm. Cause that's like being a mini CEO. And I was like, oh, okay. And then he was like, plus if, if, you know, the playbook for product management is pretty much the playbook for early stage venture capital, which is mm -hmm. where I wanted to go because if one thinks about it, what does a product manager do? Well, they're trying to identify a, a problem within an existing market where it's a big market and the problem can be solved in a novel way to really address the desired outcome. One has to understand the customers. Mm -hmm. What's the persona? What do they look like? How to make money? What are the important features and functionality? How should those be prioritized? how to get distribution, like all those things that a product manager does and those questions and answers, that's pretty much the same thing that an early stage VC does as well. So I was like, okay, got it. So, you know, the goal was, okay, go work in, in product management and then go to a, you know, the ability to run a big P&L and hopefully be a CEO. And I was able to do all those things with some, some nice companies, you know, mm -hmm. eBay, Nike, Zynga, we talked about. Yeah. And so that was my, my path. So it wasn't necessarily a transition as it more of was, hey, I knew I wanted to be a VC and I had to get the right path. Now, I wish I could have entered much earlier. I tell everyone, I think we had this conversation, yeah. you know, if possible, enter venture capital in one's 30s. Mm -hmm. If you can do it earlier, it's even better. Mm -hmm. But you got to enter in your 30s because, you know, as opposed to starting your own firm, yeah. going into venture capital, it takes a minute to prove oneself, right? right? You kind of don't know if you're good for like five to 10 years and then prove, prove that, you know, one is good to get better economics yeah. in the next fund. And these funds have 10 year lives and, you know, the period has been truncated down to, you know, two to three years for every fundraise, but you know, you can do the math and yeah. see, okay, well, if I want good economics, I got to start early yeah. and then I want to participate in as many funds as possible. And I probably don't want to, or won't be able to work until I'm 90. Mm -hmm. Right. So, <laughs> you know, unless, you know, you're, you're some of these extraordinary people out here. So I think like, that's the approach, just start in your thirties. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for me, I, I made the decision to start my own firm by definition, Plexo Capital is not a, a venture fund, but you know, just like, I don't know, Goldman Sachs isn't a venture fund, but they invest into venture rounds. That's, yeah. that's what we do. And so for me, the opportunity to, to do this by hanging my own shingle was super exciting because it allowed me to exercise my entrepreneurial skills as well, which I also like. I'm much more of an entrepreneur than a VC in many aspects um, and in my day to day. Uh, but boy, I'm, I've never had more fun than I'm having right now. Mm -hmm. And so it sounds like along the way, you received some some great advice. Uh, and you had some people that you were able to rely on to help you navigate this transition. And I, I know you've you've spoken about 
mentorship uh, publicly, you know, and, and with me, you're one of my mentors, you know, you're a mentor <laughs> to a number of other people as well. And so why do you think mentorship is so important? It's so important because for a couple of reasons, number one, I just always say I have these really simple management um, kind of edicts or adages is, is like this one is, you know, any fool can learn from their own mistakes, but it takes a wise person to learn from the mistakes made by others. And, and I really believe that to be the case. Why try to start from scratch when there's likely someone out there that's done it before? You know, yeah, sounds like I'm saying like a Zynga approach, you know, right? <laughs> <laughs> but but seriously, you know, like, why not go and try to get people that can provide the guidance to help one down this long career journey mm -hmm. that we all have? And so I think, number one, it's just important to be able to learn from other people and their experiences and to be open to take that advice and learning. Number two, as a as a black professional, I think both males and females, it's important to have the ability to have someone that also understands some of the unique things that might come up during one's career as a black professional. Mm -hmm. Many and most often, those are going to be more on the challenging end of the spectrum. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, you know, I've been blessed to have some great mentors. Ken Coleman is one of my mentors, and he has been amazing in, in just helping me. Um, remain true to my North Star mm -hmm. for what I want from my career and to provide me with just the most sage advice to the point where anything that ever comes up that's a challenge, I'm always calling Ken. And, yeah. you know, Ken will even raise things that are going to be a challenge that I don't even know are going <laughs> to be a challenge mm -hmm. before I even encounter them. Yeah. Um, you know, so that's the that's the best type of, of mentor. Mm -hmm. And I, I, you know, I think it's, a, it's just important for us to, to give back. I think, you know, one of the most interesting things that's happened in my life is the point where I saw the transition from having more conversations where I'm being mentored to now it seems like I'm having more conversations as a mentor. And that was, something that took you know a minute for me to actually grok i it was that was a, a weird one you know to kind of think of myself as a as a mentor yeah. but i think it's important i think another underappreciated thing is peer mentoring as well like actually having a strong network of friends that are in a similar career point maybe in a similar industry or maybe not mm -hmm. And then sharing stories and getting support that way as well. But, you know, mentorship is, is, is really important. You know, I think to kind of normalize things in particular to think, oh my God, is this thing just happening to me? Or God, how do I make this decision about this opportunity? Wow. I wonder if anyone else has ever had this and it can feel lonely at times. And then start to talk with people and it's like, oh, wow, this challenge has been presented on your, oh, wow that was a critical point for your ability to make a career transition and jump. Oh, shoot. Okay. I'm not alone out here. Mm -hmm. You know, that can be really helpful. And I think it's important, especially with all the awareness around, around mental health issues to kind of also have that support from just a, a normalization perspective around life events to the point where people can share their experiences and be more open 
And I think that will lead to kind of a, a better kind of state for people to be in because, you know, look, work, this is, this is, you know, when one looks at some of the most stressful things that happen in a life, you know, death of parents, relatives, close relatives, um, losing a job or making a new, taking a new job. I mean, a lot of those things are around career. So I, you know, I think it's important to be able to have folks that can help normalize these things and put them into perspective. And a lot, and often that comes from some type of, of mentorship, whether it's a true mentor or a peer mentor. Yeah. So, Lo, I know you've talked a ton about uh, just the diversity issues in, in VC. And so, you know, we don't necessarily have to talk about why you're passionate about it, but just, you know, as you, as your career has evolved, how have you seen the industry change? And then, you know, going forward, and maybe we can tie this into our concluding question, you know, how would you like to see the VC industry change going forward when it comes to diversity, but also just generally, what are some of the changes you would like to see going forward? So I like this question because the the change. See, since I've been again, I got the gray hairs to prove it. <laughs> since I've been around this industry for so long, I've just seen you know profound changes. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, having people like Tyson Clark, general partner at GV, Elliot Robinson, general mm -hmm. partner at Bessemer, and most recently, super proud of this one. Uh, Chris Lyons, general partner at Andreessen Horowitz, mm -hmm. you know, that just was not the case back right. in the day, right? And so that's been the most profound change that I've seen is just kind of, you know, seeing people that look like us, um, you know, as well as the the sisters that are out there as well that are doing things that I was looking, scouring the internet at the time to, to find those faces and never saw them. And it's mm -hmm. great to see them now. And it's great to see that people come from different schools. You know, it's still the dominant, you know, duo is yeah. Harvard, Stanford. Mm -hmm. But nonetheless, you know, you see people from other schools, which is great. And so that's what I'm most excited about is, is what the future holds. You know, again, at GV, we had this thesis around the indirect path taken by Black GPs mm -hmm. and the fact that it, it really leads to different access to deal flow from different networks and a different lens to evaluate market opportunities that might be missed on Sand Hill or to give an entrepreneur that doesn't look like Zuck when he was, you know, 15 years ago mm -hmm. and an opportunity to, to succeed. So that's what I'm really excited about. And then to your question, okay, you know, what do I hope the future holds? Mm -hmm. I always say, you know, people ask because our model is at Plexo Capital is predicated on identifying the next great franchises in venture capital led by GPs that are women or people of color. Mm -hmm. And so I always tell people when they ask me the the obvious question, which is, well, Lo, how long will your model remain relevant? And I always say, man, hopefully as short as possible. Yeah. Because it would be great to not have to, you know, have a allocator, an allocator of capital mm -hmm. like Plexo Capital that focuses exclusively on this model. Um, and, you know, look, we're at least moving in the right direction, obviously not as fast as we all would like. But I believe that with the demographic changes that are just coming in general, it only makes sense that more of these next generation franchises with the most recognizable logos that are sought after by entrepreneurs as part of their investor base mm -hmm. 
are going to be led by women and people of color. So the sooner that, and, and look, there's more under the hood at Plexo Capital with our model and yeah. the way we've innovated than just the sole aspect of diversity, which often is the headline. Mm -hmm. But boy, I can't wait until, you know, there's no need for these so-called diversity funds. Mm -hmm. Yeah, though, I, I hope your uh, model changes as soon as possible as well. <laughs> I, I think that's a, a great way to put it. Um, so yeah, I just want to say thanks for taking the time, Lo. This was really Well, great. thanks for having me. Really yeah. appreciate it.